Revelation chapter 4, one verse this morning, as we look um, at this verse, it's just one verse we're going through, and we are in the division between the second and third division of the book of Revelation. You'll notice that there's no red letters beginning in chapter 4. That's because we are at the beginning of the third division, the things which will take place after the period of the church. So it tells us in Romans 11.25, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, it implies um, a number of people. The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Uh, The church age began with Pentecost, The church age will end with the rapture of the church. And then God has seven-year period of time that he still owes to Israel, so that's why in the very next verse it says, and so all Israel will be saved. We're switching from the church age into the things that are now going to be taking place during a seven-year period of time. So I see chapter four, verse one, there's certain events that are gonna bring this about. Last week we were studying the... Ezekiel 38 war, and I believe the rapture of the church could happen before, during, or after. Um, We find that the two witnesses arrive, according to Revelation chapter 11, right at the very beginning of the seven-year period of time, because Revelation 11 tells us to the day how long their ministry is, 1,260 days, which is exactly three and a half years. Church removed, God begins the clock ticking, the 70th week of Daniel starts, but God always leaves a witness and it starts out with these two witnesses that tell us that their ministry is exactly three and a half years. With that being said, let's look at verse one. After these things, question what things? The Greek word there is metatona, uh, meaning after these things, or after the things of the church age, I looked and behold, the door still standing open in heaven, and the voice which I heard was like a trumpet. Now this is interesting. Speaking with me saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Because I believe the Lord's coming is soon. And it could happen literally at any time. I didn't want to try and cover it all in one Sunday. So this morning we'll be looking at part one for from the Old Testament types and pictures of the pre-trib rapture. And I want to emphasize the words um, type and pictures. And unless you think I'm not on solid ground by making such a statement, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down Romans chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul is comparing Jesus to Adam, and the terminology he uses is uh, Jesus as a type of Adam. So he's connecting the two. And he says, remember last week we read that the volume of the book is about Jesus? Well, this goes way back to Adam. The question is, well, how is he a type of Adam? Well, the woman was deceived. It was Eve. It wasn't Adam. And yet, 
he saw her in her fallen state. And the idea is he, of his own free will, partook of the fruit to become and stay with her. Are you following me with this? Jesus sees us in our fallen state. And to be with us, we just sang the song about we want to be his bride and we want to go with him. How is Jesus the type of Adam? He, of his own free will, he said, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And my bride has no hope unless I die with her. So how is Jesus the type of Adam? Well, Jesus did the same thing that Adam did. Adam, of his own free will, decided to eat of the fruit so he could be with the woman he loved. So I, I go there and tell you this only because we're going to be using types. Probably um, the greatest example of a type without, um, oh, what the heck, go to it. Genesis 22, we're gonna be in Genesis anyway. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 is clearly showing what I'm talking about being a typology. And in the very first verse, if it doesn't smack of John 3.16, I don't know what it does. This is Abraham offering Isaac up. Came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what should be thinking in your mind right now. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you. Here we have a picture. And it's a picture of a father who willfully goes to a place called Moriah. Now, Jerusalem is surrounded with seven different mountains. There's Mount of Olives, there's Mount Scopus, there's Mount Moriah, and others, Mount Zion. And when you go to Mount Moriah, that is where the Temple Mount is. It's 742 meters above sea level. But the Lord says, I'm gonna take you to a place uh, that I will show you. So part of Moriah, as you go up Mount Moriah, you end up at a place that we call today Calvary. That is 777 meters above sea level. Don't you think that's an interesting number? (laughs) I certainly do. What are you saying, Dwight? When you look down, we all know the story. Um, Isaac said, Dad, uh, here's the wood. Uh, Here's the fire, but where's the offering? And it says they went in agreement. And um, in verse eight it says, my God will provide himself, literally. If you got the King James, you have the better translation. The article four should not be there. Uh, My God will provide himself, literally. So it's a prophecy. And you know that he would have went through with it, but an angel interceded and stopped him. And the Lord says, it was a test, and you passed. And then he prophesies in verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to the day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. In other words, what he was acting out here, another heavenly father was gonna go through with it. And my personal conviction, it was at Calvary that this actually took place. Now why did I go here? 
Because the rest of the study this morning is also pictures and types of the rapture of the church. But I wanted to lay a little bit of a foundation just to show you that from the New Testament, um, Romans 5.14 says that Jesus was a type of Adam. And now we have the story of Abraham and Isaac clearly playing out a part that would literally be fulfilled when Jesus was offered up on a cross. Everybody with me? Good, now we can start our Bible study. So let's turn to, um, let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter five. And as you're turning, I'm gonna be quoting where we'll be next week, just one, a couple verses for next week I wanna work in this morning. This Wednesday evening, we're in Daniel chapter 12. And again, I find it interesting how the timing of certain information that we get on a Wednesday night works into a teaching on Sunday morning. Now, we're gonna finish Daniel this Wednesday night. And what we're going to learn is the very day that Jesus Christ comes a second time. Why is Daniel such an important book? It tells us to the day he comes and worship the first time. But Daniel chapter 12, the last couple of verses, tells us to the day he's gonna come again. Why do you bring that up, Dwight? Well, in Matthew 24, verse 36, it says, but of that day and hour knows no man, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. What is that coming? Well, nobody knows the day or the hour. It has to be the rapture because I know the day he's coming the second time. And that's what this Wednesday night's Bible study is all about. So be a Brian, come out, check it out, and do your own homework. For as it was before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This verse points us back to the Old Testament to when? The days of Noah. And the days of Noah, um, if you're in chapter five, what we have, beginning in verse one, is a complete genealogy, starting with Adam in verse one, um, Verse three says, and Adam lived 130 years and he got sons and daughters. And then the last one, verse 32, goes all the way up to Noah. Uh, Noah lived 500 years and begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you have the, the people and the genealogy and how long they lived. Now what should stick out to you is the longevity of life before the flood. And of course, uh, the oldest one is Methuselah, and he lived to be 969 years old. Time for a riddle. If Methuselah was the oldest man who ever lived, how is it that he died before his father? Some of you who have been around for a while know the answer because I've told it before. Let me tell it to you again. If Methuselah was the oldest man recorded in the scriptures, 
How is it that he died before his father? The answer is found in chapter five, verse 24, because his father's name was Enoch. And we find that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch never died. So there's a riddle for you around the kitchen table sometime that you can have fun with. What's your point? It's a picture. Here is a man who walked with God and one day God just took him, just like that. It's a picture, Old Testament picture, of the rapture of the church. But there's actually more to it than just a picture. Uh, Enoch named his son Methuselah. And as you know, Adam means man, and a lot of these biblical characters, there's a meaning with the, the name of the person. The meaning of the name of Enoch's son Methuselah means his death shall bring, or another translation is, when he is dead, it shall come. The question is, what will come? And the answer is the flood. And when you do your homework on this one, the year Methuselah died is the year the flood came. And he knew it. He walked with God and somehow that information was passed on. I suppose everybody got a little nervous every time Methuselah got a cold. (laughs) Genesis chapter six, what's it going to be like? No man knows the day or the hour. My friend, that could only be a rapture verse, but that's for next week. Genesis six tells us, but it'll be like the days of Noah. Let's read the first four verses, three or four verses of Genesis 6. Came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves to whom all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. Evidently, this is how long Moses ministered to his generation. And there were giants on the earth in those days. And then it says, and also afterwards, and when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they were born children to them, they were the mighty men who were of old, men of Renown. Now, there's um, two trains of thought with what's being said here. And I'll go back to the sons of God in verse 2. And um, it is debated by some that what he's talking about is the lineage and the line of Seth. Other people believe, myself included, that we're talking about literal angels. And what I'd like you to do is keep your finger here uh, and turn with me to the book of Job. Look at verse two. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took them to wife. Now go to Job chapter one. The Hebrew word here is Ben Elohim in Genesis six. And in Job chapter one, 
and verse six, it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also was among them. So we have angels, but it is the same Hebrew word that we find in Genesis six. It's um, uh, Ben, which is son of, and then Elohim, God. So what we have, if we're gonna be true to the text, and a result of the offspring being something not natural, that we have this interaction, and as a result, um, there were giants in the land then, but then of course we had the flood, and every living creature died, except angels are eternal beings. And they, the scripture tells us that hell was made for the devil and his angels. They are eternal beings is my point. So you can kill the flesh, but what happens to the spirit? So we know that there were giants after the flood simply because of Goliath. At men's prayer, we were talking about what a David's brother killing a giant that had uh, six figures on one hand, six figures on the other hand, and 12 toes. And um, this article right here uh, is very interesting um, because here the scriptures talk about them not just as Raphim, but also as Emim and Zamzuman. How is that for a name? I'm quoting Deuteronomy 2, verse 20. Uh, that was also regarded that there was giants in the land, formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zam, Z-U-M-M-I-M. So they had a name, if you're an Edomite or an Ammonite, and they existed. Well, um, I'm gonna put up a couple of pictures. I did a little research and show you a picture of skeletons. This article right here um, extremely interesting because they're found all over America in grave sites and all over the world. And if you Google this, you'll, you'll be blown away. Um, that's just one picture. I'll show you another one with two in there. And then to give it some perspective of, of a six-foot man standing next to one, here's another one. Okay. Why did the children of Israel come back with a bad report? The 10 that went in? They said, we look like ants compared to these guys. Were there giants in the land after the flood? Absolutely. And um, um, a lot of this, what I, what I, the more I read about the Rephraim and the Imam, um, well, it says, well, Rephahim whereas common among the Israelites, it, it seems that other peoples had different names for such, like the Anakim. Uh, they also counted as Rephim, but the Moabites called them E-M-I-M, that's in Deuteronomy 2, verse 11. The word Emen is derived from the Hebrew word Iyama, uh, which means terror or fear, uh, in modern Hebrew, um, uh, Sarek Ima uh, means a horror film. And it can teach us 
how the ancient Moabites perceived the Raphim. And what I found interesting about this article, it's only another paragraph long, so bear with me, is their communication style. The reason that the, the some call them Nephilim or Raphim, were closely associated with the spirit of the dead, even today, Raphim, which means ghost in modern Hebrew, the fact can't explain the other names of the Raphim employed by the Amorites. Raphim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. Uh, Zamzumim comes from the Hebrew word Zimzam, which means to buzz or hum, and describes the characteristic noise they produced, which is strongly associated with the ancient belief of the noise of the spirits of the dead generated, as can be found in the book of Isaiah. I'm quoting now Isaiah 8, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers, and then it says who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? So it's sort of sarcastic and derogatory. What are you guys doing talking with these creatures? Should not you be inquiring of the Lord God? Should they Inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, Isaiah 8, verse 19. Another captivating explanation for this name is based on the unique uh, uh, morphology of the Hebrew word zimzum, a word that with its phonetics imitates the source of the sound that is described. When one thinks about the English translation of this word buzzing, also imitates the production of a sound it describes. In other words, the sound of the Rephim's language sounded to the Amorites as buzzing and is similar to what we, with the ancient Greeks who called the primitive tribes of Europe barbarians because of the sound of their language. I'm gonna leave that off there and have you go back to Genesis chapter six and we've made it two and through verse four. Change of thought. Verse five, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to destroy whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, uh, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. So in verses five through seven, Jesus said, when the rapture happens, nobody knows the day or the hour, but it's gonna be like the days of Noah. And I gotta tell you, gang, as I look around this world today, we're headed in that direction if we're not already there. Probably a good place for an amen. In other words, we can see it coming. If I would have given this Bible study a year ago and say, look, our world is gonna completely change in six months and it'll never be the same again, you'd say, Dwight, it's time for you to take a vacation. (laughs) Look what's happened to our world in six months. It's unthinkable. And... um, It's becoming more and more like the days of Noah. And so 
And we read in verse five through seven, uh, verse eight now, we're introduced to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is a major verse. In verse nine, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. The word perfect doesn't mean perfect because all have sinned, but righteous. In his generation, Noah walked with God. What did Noah and Enoch have in common? They both walked with God. And they didn't live like the rest of the world. And the Lord told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth and he was going to put him on a building project for the next 120 years. It says in the New Testament that he was a preacher of righteousness. So for 120 years, he said judgment is coming. It's imminent. It's going to happen. You know how many converts he had? Zip. His family had to go along because they were part of the family. But they laughed at him. And we'll be getting to that. So what we have in verses 14 through 16, and I'm gonna have the ark put up on the screen uh, as I read these verses, verse 14. He says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, uh, rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch or tar. And this is how you'll make it. The length of the ark will be 300 cubics. That's 450 feet long. 50 cubics um, high, that's 75 feet. And 30 cubics wide, that's 45 feet. And here we have a picture of it. How many of you, anybody been there? Oh, quite a few. That's great. I hear it's quite an experience. And it's more than just a one-day adventure to be able to... Um, uh, take that in. Um, I actually Googled this morning, and it's back and forth, have they actually found um, the original ark? Neil Armstrong says he saw it from space. I don't know if he did or didn't. I know there's been many expeditions to Mount Ararat. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I know that there was one that was a counterfeit. That one was exposed, but it was good for the tourists. But they have claimed that they actually have found the original I don't really know if it matters one way or the other. But here we have, between verses 14 and 16, um, uh, the dimensions and how it it was made. And then in 17 to 21, and behold, I myself am bringing the flood of water on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is in the breath of life, and everything that is on the earth shall die but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you and every living thing of flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Now this is gonna be a test question when I just read it in just a minute. And they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creature on the earth after its kind and two of every kind will come and you're to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Now we read, if you're taking notes in Hebrews chapter 11 verse seven, it says this, by faith, 
Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became uh, the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Which brings us to chapter 7, and I want to look at the first three verses. I was um, having down to the Y for a while, but I used to be a daily Y guy. And I walked in on a conversation one time in the room, and it was, they were talking about the Bible. And they were talking about, the guy was asking a question, um, how many of each kind went into Noah's ark? And he saw me come up and he says, and I think he knew I was a pastor, he says, I've never met anybody yet who can answer my question. Can you? How many of each kind came into Noah's ark? And of course, everybody always says two, two by two. Wrong answer. I said, no, it's not two by two. The Bible says seven of each clean kind and two of every unclean. Why seven? Because when the ark rested on Ararat, Noah took one of the clean and offered it unto the Lord. So that you still got male and female, three of, of the clean, six of the clean, but he couldn't kill one of the unclean because then he'd only have one male and one female. And so the answer, now we can read it, he says, you're the only guy that ever got the answer right. <laughs> I said, it's my job. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, all in your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and a female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and a female, and seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, and keep the species alive on the face of the earth. So we have... um, Uh, this account of, and we're going to be having, Russ Miller is going to be joining us for our prophecy conference. And he's already sent me his topics and uh, it'll be really good uh, having Russ with us. And I did mention that Curtis Bowers is also going to be a part of the prophecy conference this year. And I hope our little video from Kelly Victory will encourage you not to be afraid uh, to come out and attend the conference. It brings us to um, chapter 7, verse 11 through 17. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. It wasn't just 40 days that, that it rained from heaven. No, the great fountains of the deep opened up. And it's like a, a baseball. And when you go to the bottom of our ocean, it looks like the, the, the stitching on a baseball. And it goes all the way around our planet. And this is when the fountains of the deep erupted upwards. It's what caused the global shift. And for those of you enough, fortunate enough to have traveled with Russ Miller to the Grand Canyon, he'll lay it out scientifically, not just biblically, scientific evidence of a worldwide flood. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And um, so it wasn't just the 40 days of, um, verse 12, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his son Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and their fruit wives and sons, were then entered the ark. And every beast of its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing after its kind, every bird after its kind, um, every bird after its sort. Uh, Russ does a great job by using this verse to say, after its kind. They're, they can morph into a different kind of dog. But a dog will never morph into a bird. It's after its own kind. There's different kinds. And that's what's being implied here. And they went into the ark of Noah, two by two, all flesh which is in the breath of life. And this is an interesting verse. So those that entered, male and female, the flesh went in as God had commanded, and the Lord shut them in. Can I give you a verse to think about between now and next week? We're going to be talking about the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And after the five came into the wedding banquet, it said the door was shut. And the ones that didn't have oil, they came and they wanted in, but they weren't allowed in. Only the ones that had oil in their lamp. And I'll just leave that as a little teaser for next week. But the similarity here is the same. If you were preached to for 120 years, and you're building a boat out in the middle of nowhere, and you're preaching judgment, the people are thinking, you crazy old man, building a boat out in the middle of the desert, talking judgment. It's not gonna happen. It happened. What do you think they were thinking the day that it started to pour? Don't you think there were some knock on Noah's doors? It says, the Lord closed the door. And even if Noah wanted to open it, he couldn't. And then it says, now the flood was on the earth for 40 uh, 40 days, the water receded and lifted up the ark and rose high above the mountains. So what do we have a picture of? We have a picture of um, being taken up. Jesus is really a picture of the ark. He's the type here. And on the reason I make a point of it being Jesus is when you get to chapter eight, and um, well, verse 24 is interesting to me of chapter seven. It says, the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. That's how much the judgment was there for. Now, when we get to Revelation chapter nine, the demon locusts that are released that torment men for how long? Five months. How much is five months? 150 days. I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, verse eight. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth. The water subsided, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven also were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth And at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Verse four, very important. Then the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. Why would the Lord give us the date that the ark came to rest? The Jewish calendar starts with the new year in the fall. It falls on the Feast of Trumpets. So the seventh month, would be Nisan, falling closer to March and April and Passover depending on the lunar cycle. It's never the same. 
So what are we being told here? That Noah's Ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th of Nisan. You say, what is the 17th of Nisan? What if I told you that Passover was the 14th of Nisan when Jesus was crucified? Anything of significance happened three days later on the 17th? Can you see why I see the ark as a type of Jesus? He came to rest. The work is over. It is finished. And he proved it by raising from the dead. And the fact that the Holy Spirit decided to throw in the date here blows my mind. And so what we have, like the rapture, uh, the ark is taken up, returns to earth on the 17th of Nisan. So also we are taken up and then come back down to what? A whole new world. That's gonna be completely changed. The ark and Enoch are both pictures of the rapture of the church. Enoch walked with God, poof, he's gone. And then we have the ark, type of Jesus, actually being the instrument that takes us up. Jesus, um, we'll be talking about this more next week, both were taken out to escape judgment. This is gonna be important for our study next week. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. I wanna give one more illustration of a type in the Old Testament. We're switching from Noah to Abraham. And... In Abraham's case, in chapter 18, I want to read the first eight verses. Then the Lord appeared to him, this would be Abraham, by the terebinth tree at Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him, and he saw them and ran from the tent down to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. Now, they appear as men which tells us what? Angels could either appear and scare the daylights out of you because of being an angel, or they could be like these guys here. They're angels, we're gonna find out, but they don't look like angels, they look like men. And they bowed himself to the ground, and he said, my Lord, so we got two angels in the Lord. If I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts and after that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender, good calf, gave it to the young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set them before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. For those of you who have been to Israel, anything strange about that verse? You can't have dairy products and meat at the same meal. And what do we have here? We have dairy products and milk at the same meal. And sometimes if I'm in a kidding mood and they won't give me my butter because we're having meat, I said, do you guys ever read Genesis 18? (laughs) I'll let that one go with that. So 
let's go ahead to verse 16 because what's, the angels are on assignment because they have an appointment with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the problem with this is Lot's is nephew to Abraham and God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and he has family that lives there. So now we have this negotiation going on between the Lord and Abraham, picking it up in verse 16. The angels leave. Then the men rose from there and and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed by him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, and that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see what they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. I'll know. And I will know. Then the men turned away and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Do you have the picture? Angels are going on to Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham and the Lord are now talking. And Abraham has a question and a problem. And Abraham came near and said, Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Let's just suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and do not spare it for the 50 righteous sake? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find Sodom and Gomorrah 50 righteous within a city, then I will spare the place for the sake of the 50. And now the wheels are turning. There's, no, there's Lot, his wife, um, and his sons and daughters, eight all told. Not, not 50, only eight. And he's not quite comfortable with the answer of 50. But it brings up a very important point when we talk about the rapture of the church why there has to be a rapture. And the explanation, I believe, is laid out here. Now, I'm not going to go through 50, 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20, down to 10. But that's the verses from verse uh, 26 uh, to verse 32. But basically, he's being a good Jewish businessman, and he's bartering with the creator of the universe. And every time he asks a question, well, what about 30? Nope, won't do it for 30. Well, what about 25? Nope, won't do it for 25 either. And then he doesn't want to wear the Lord out, so he says in verse 32, Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll just speak one more time. What about just 10? I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. 
And I'm wondering what he's thinking. He knows there's eight, and he's gotta be thinking, there's gotta be two. And all these cities, there's gotta be two that are righteous. And what we find in uh, chapter 19, we find the angels coming into town and there are strangers in town and the whole city, it tells us, from the youngest to the oldest was given over to um, sodomy, homosexuality. And when they, when um, Lot, he was one of the leaders in town and he was sitting at the gate and he sees these two strangers come in and he's going, uh-oh, and he says, guys, I tell you what, you're sleeping at my house tonight. And they said, no, we're going to stay out in the streets. And he says, nope, you're staying at my house tonight. And he brings these two, they're men as far as he's concerned, but they're really angels. And it tells us that the men of the city followed him to Lot's house. And verse 12, it says, the men said to Lot, Oh no, before we get there, uh, he pulls them in and uh, the men said, who do you think you are, Lot? Who made you a judge over us? But he ignored them and Lot went into the house and he shut the door. And these men began to beat on the door and the two angels, we read in verse 11, uh, smote them with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary to find the door. Now, how perverted is a city? You know, once you're blind and you can't see, don't you think it's time to go home? They didn't. They groped to try to get to these two men. And this blows my mind what Lot offers up next. The custom in Judaism is that if you invite a stranger into your house, you're responsible for their well-being and their safety. And now they're being threatened. And what he says to them is, I have two daughters that have never known men. In other words, they were virgins. He says, you can have them. And that blows my mind that he would actually say that. And then the angel said, well, the Lord's gonna destroy this place. And so now he has to tell the rest of his family. So let's pick it up in verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law and had, then had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place for the Lord is gonna destroy the city. But to his son-in-laws, he seems to be joking. And when the morning dawned, the angel urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be condemned in the punishment of the city. And notice this, and while they lingered, I think there's a lot of lingering going on right now in people's lives. As we see just how late it is, and we're talking about this morning the rapture of the church. Do you know how foolish that sounds to many people? Very foolish. They seem to be, um, the word here is that you gotta be joking. And um, so they're lingering, Uh, Verse 16, the men took hold of his hands, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. 
And it came to pass when I had brought them out, he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain except to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And Lot gets into this whole thing about not wanting to go anywhere but to another city. And he says, well, there's, there's Zora over there, please. It's just a little city. Let me go and stay there. And um, the angel said, okay, go. But verse 22 is a very, very important verse in our understanding of the rapture of the church, especially the pre-trib rapture of the church. What the angel said in verse 22, he says, hurry, escape, for we cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zorah. What's your point? My point is simply this. The tribulation, God's judgment again, there was a judgment on Noah. He had to be taken out before the judgment would affect him. In the case of Lot, the judgment could not and would not fall until they're out. And my point is, that's exactly what in Revelation chapter four, we're done with the church age. The first seal and the Antichrist has not yet been open. You'll see when we get in chapters four and five, where's the church? It's in heaven, in chapters four and five. But the tribulation can't start until we are out of here. God has not appointed us to wrath, period. But he's appointed us to obtain salvation. There has to be a rapture. Why? Well, it's the right thing to do. Abraham to God. Lord, you're righteous. Are you gonna judge the righteous with the unrighteous? Nope, won't do it. What about if there's only 10? Nope, won't do it if there's only 10. It was only eight. And they had to get them out. Verse 22, we can't do anything until you're out of here. And as soon as they were taken out, fire fell from heaven. Verse 24, brimstone from the Lord. And he overthrew the cities of the plain and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Now I'm going to quote um, Luke chapter 17, verse 32. This to me is a tragedy. We're talking about Lot's wife. Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 32, but his wife looked back behind her and she became a pillar of salt. What it's telling us here is her heart was still back there. The warning was, don't, they're so wicked, don't even look back. If I would use a New Testament analogy when sharing the gospel and they don't want to hear it, what are you supposed to do? Shake the dust off your feet and keep going. Amen? That's what's going on here. They're so wicked, you shake your dust off. I don't want you looking back. But her heart was back there. And as a result, Jesus says, concerning these are rapture verses, remember Lot's wife. And one of the things the church needs to hear today is as bad as it is, don't let your heart get caught up in this stuff. You can't take it with you. And it's only getting worse. So don't say, well, those were the good old days and all that kind of stuff. So we read, and I'll close, begin to close this up here. Concerning Lot, 
Judgment can't come until the righteous are taking out. If you're taking notes, 2 Peter 2, chapter 2 says, as verse 7, that God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Don't we feel that way today? As we look around, aren't our spirits grieved when we see and hear the things that are taking place? For that righteous man dwelling among them, it tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to rescue the the uh, and to reserve the unjust under punishment for that great day of judgment. The Lord knows how how to get us out of here. It's called the rapture of the church. How will God deliver the church out before the judgment comes? Turn to Isaiah, one verse, and Isaiah chapter 26. I truly believe these are rapture verses. Tucked in the middle, like so often is in the book of Isaiah. Verse 19 of chapter 26 says, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, and you who dwell in the dew of the herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. And then he says, Come, my people, and enter your chambers, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. The word indignation is one of the many words used for the great tribulation. Why? Because the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose her blood and will no more cover the slain. You don't have to turn there, but I will. I'm going to read to you John 14. The Lord says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in me, believe also in in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be there also. Isaiah 26 says, I want you to go into your chambers, a place I prepared for you. I want you to shut your door for a little while. How long of a little while? Seven years. And then what? And why do that? Taken up, raptured, and we're in our dwelling place? Why? Until the indignation is past. The indignation is a great tribulation period. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to do what? To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Do you think all the stuff that's going on right now, people are gonna get away with? Not at all. The Bible says the books are gonna be open. And those who wanted to be judged by their works, they're going to be. And nobody's getting away with anything. And this period of time, according to Revelation 6, verse 17, is the wrath of the Lamb. That's important to understand. He's long-suffering and he's patient. And I think a verse that really fits into our study this morning is Genesis 6 where it says, my spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not always strive with man. 
That means he's striving with them right now to come to Christ, to believe the gospel, because it is the only ark that's leaving town, if you follow my analogy. And yet there are those that aren't taking this seriously, and they don't believe a thing like this will ever happen. It has to happen. And the Lord will go out, and this is the wrath of the Lamb that lasts for seven years. And then after that, we actually return with him at the second coming. I was reading, and I will close with this. Uh, For those of you who like wisdom for today, yesterday was the 25th. And for those of you who, who read it, the whole chapter was about the rapture of the church. And I thought, Lord, this is sure interesting timing. And the very last thing that, the Lord, that Chuck closes his, um, his um, study up with is one word, and that is watch. Watch for what? For all these strange things that are happening, their birth pains, their signs. And don't look back. And the next verse after that in John 17 says, and two will be in one bed. One will be taken and one will be left. Those are the verses that follow those scriptures. And that's where we're gonna be next week. Thank you for letting me go a little bit extra longer this morning. Sunday school teachers, please forgive me. I promise... Promise I'll never do it again. What do you mean you know me better than that? Okay, let's let's stand and we'll close the prayer. Lord, we do live in strange times. How grateful we are, Lord, that you give us Old Testament pictures of New Testament teachings. And as we looked at the Old Testament types of Enoch being taken because he walked with you, and that he was taken out before the judgment came. And we see, Lord, the same with with Lot, that um, he could not bring judgment until Lot was also taken out. And so we understand that your word tells us that we have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And the Lord does know how to, to deliver the righteous. And thank you that you've laid this out for us this morning and for the blessed hope that it gives to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.